It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, how are you? All right. How's your week been? Uh, my week's been good. I'll tell you what I've been doing some of. DIY. Cycling. Wow. Electric cycling. Wow. Yeah, these electric street bikes you can hire. It's like being on a bicycle, only it doesn't hurt as much. Does it help with balance issues, the electric bike, or not? I don't know if it would help with your balance issues specifically, but um, you, you certainly speed along with very little effort. It's great. Let me just raise something with you in the privacy of this podcast, which is that my wife has been peddling to me an adult tricycle. (laughs) (laughs) So she doesn't trust you on a bicycle? She says I should should drive it, because obviously getting to work is a thing, but Mm. she's saying I I should ride an adult tricycle. Well, I think you'd look silly on an adult tricycle, but, but, but what about a normal bike with stabilizers? I think that's worse. <laughs> I think that's worse. Uh, I love how little faith she has in your ability to ride a bicycle. No, but it is quite... I mean, as we've discussed before, I wouldn't really trust myself doing it in the, on the London streets, and nor does she, obviously. <laughs> There's some fashionable ones. Mm, I don't think... I'm not sure. Mm. I'm, I'm you- sort of sceptical. I, t- I take it a unicycle's completely out of the question. It's quite meme-tastic. Maybe a tandem... You and me. Have we discussed that before? Me and you on a bicycle made for two? Yeah. Are you a good bicycle? I, I wouldn't have you down as somebody who's able to be very well balanced. I'm, I'm not particularly I mean, well. Clearly, I'm in, a, I'm in a wholly different league of, of sort of, you know, haplessness when it comes to balance. But I wouldn't have you down as great either. I'm pretty bad. I'm, I'm, my, my problem is more careering all over the road. Well, exactly. So. I've been along the canal towpath a couple of times, and I think it's only a matter of time before I go headfirst into the water. Isn't that the danger? I'm, I'm getting myself a helmet. And also, the last time we did this episode on cycling, I was sort of, we talked down the sort of safety aspects, and I shouldn't be talking them down, I should be talking them up. Well, I think you should get yourself that tricycle and be a good example to other people. 
exactly. I know what I had to ask you about. Go on. What was the thing like at your work this week where you had to queue up to vote? Ridiculous. How long were you in the queue for? Well, uh, thanks to um, my colleagues Lucy Powell and Rachel Reeves, we kind of got there early. We queued early. It was like Wimbledon, you know. <laughs> we sort of brought a camp bed to, to sort of get into queue early. But then, so then we thought, well, there were, I think there were two votes. So we then thought, okay, we'll get through and then get round to the sort of, you know, start queuing again for the second round. But then it sort of all got a bit confused. And, and then we were told afterwards, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, you should be, because if you join the back of the queue. And I must say, Jacob Rees-Mogg was looking pretty sheepish, as he should, as he should do. Did you see anybody attempting to do a, a cut and chat? I sent you a video from Curb Your Enthusiasm of, of Larry calling somebody out for doing a cut and chat in the queue for a buffet. Well, Lucy Powell was definitely saying, oh, those people have pushed in front of the queue to me. I mean, there was, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, there's a certain sort of British eye for the queue jumper. And she has it. She has the eye for the queue jumper. She was sort of saying, oh, I think those people have pushed in. Are, are you not allowed to cut the queue? Because, you know, you're Ed Miliband. Uh, no, I think, I don't think you should be sort of, you can't sort of say, well, I'm really important, so I, or I'm really, you know, was, I was important once. Good for I, you. I was, just you know, te- I was just testing your egalitarian principles. Yeah, and I passed. You did pass with colours. flying colours, flying colours. But, I mean, you know, we then had this incident with Alok Sharma, poor bloke, who, who you know, broke out into this terrible sweat in the middle of, you know, facing me across the dispatch box, not, not caused an effect. <laughs> uh and people were worried he had coronavirus, but thankfully he, ha- he didn't. I think he might have eaten some dodgy salmon. And you were you were heroic. You passed him a glass of water. I did pass it from a social distance. I did push a glass of water in his direction. I'm not sure he could absolutely reach it, um, but I felt did feel pretty sorry for him because he obviously got really ill really suddenly. Yeah, uh, but he he seems to be recovered, be recovering anyway. Did you see we were retweeted by the Estonian embassy? I know that is the first time that's happened to me. To my knowledge. A long and storied career such as yours, and you're still having these firsts after all these years. So, Isn't it, isn't it time to do a sort of extended episode of Reasons to be Estonian? Well, let, let's see if they buy it. I mean, that we know they're following our activity on Twitter. If you are listening to this in the Estonian embassy and you would like to arrange a junket, then you know, when, when times are different, when it's appropriate, we'd very much enjoy a little... Uh, a little lad's holiday to Estonia, wouldn't we, Ed? Definitely. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Now, um, we should get on to what we're talking about this week. And, you know, we absolutely thought that there's only one conversation that we should be having. Yeah, this week we're talking about Black Lives Matter and anti-racism in the UK. After George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis, Black Lives Matter protests are once again taking place around the world against police violence and systemic racism, including protests in cities across the UK over the weekend. 60 years after the civil rights movement in the US and more than 20 years since the McPherson report following the murder of Stephen Lawrence in the UK, people are asking, rightly, what it will take to address the deep racial injustices in our societies. There's been a lot of talk on social media over the last 10 days or so about what we can all do to address racism, so we thought we'd explore some of those questions. We're going to be talking to barrister and former Deputy Mayor of London, Matthew Ryder, about how to make this a real moment of change for how black people are treated in this country. Then we're talking to Professor Kalwant Bhopal, author of White Privilege, The Myth of a Post-Racial Society, about the importance of understanding the broader problems of racial inequality in the UK. 
I should also add, we hope to talk to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who represents Minnesota in the House of Representatives, about the situation in the US. She was booked to come on the show, but obviously her district includes Minneapolis and has been deeply affected by what's happened uh, in the last couple of weeks. So we hope to have her on a future episode. Yeah. We'll get to that conversation in very shortly. Before that, what's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? My reason to be cheerful is something an old friend of mine contacted me about that I thought sounded really good. It's called Pin Your Thanks. And, you know, as we've been talking about in previous episodes, we, we were all going out and doing the clap for the carers. Yeah. And it's it's a little thing. It raises money for charity, uh, NHS Charities Together and Volunteering Matters. And it's it's these pins that you can buy, little badges you can buy to say thanks to uh, NH workers and delivery drivers, you know, any any essential worker. And they've had some really well-known names design these badges. So people like Kieran Knightley, Joe Lysett, Ringo Starr, uh, footballer David James, loads loads of people. And you can see the designs and buy one of these things. They cost a fiver. And as I say, it's, a, it's an excellent cause too by going to pinyourthanks.org. That's pinyourthanks.org. Org. That's my reason to be cheerful. What's yours? Mine is about a couple of goats. Oh, of course it is. Because basically it was my son Daniel's 11th birthday. He obviously couldn't have a party, but we'd read something in The Guardian about how you could get a Zoom call with a goat. <laughs> and, and you did it. We did it not once, but twice. Wow. And how did it go? Well, I mean, the goat was quite chatty in the chat room on Zoom. <laughs> Uh, I don't know whether it was really the goat doing the typing, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, both of the goats sort of did some nuzzling, did quite a lot of eating. One had a second breakfast, one had a second lunch. Um, And, uh, you know, a good time was had by all. We had Justine's parents on one of the calls with the goat. Um, You know, it's a sort of slightly unusual way to have a birthday, but um, Daniel enjoyed it. It was good. And any chance, any chance then of your family getting its own imaginary goat? Do you think that's a good idea? Maybe that's true. Bit of company for Chutney. Maybe that is. I'm not sure how Chutney would get on with a goat, though, actually. Do you don't think there might be a bit of sort of rivalry there? Maybe so. Animal rivalry. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start the conversation, we're joined now by Matthew Ryder, who is a barrister and former deputy mayor of London for social integration. As a barrister, Matthew has represented the families of both Stephen Lawrence and Ian Tomlinson. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so since the murder of George Floyd, we've seen Black Lives Matter protests in the US, but also here in the UK. Just talk to us at the beginning as to why this is an important moment for racial justice in the UK and and what specific issues we should be focusing on right now? Well, I think that the uh, images of George Floyd, uh, unfortunately, have come as as the last of many, many instances like this, where the world has seen American police um, use excessive force, deadly force against African-Americans, predominantly men, but not exclusively men. Um, And as a result, African-Americans have died or been seriously injured in that, those events. And what's different about this, as you pointed out, is that the world has suddenly decided enough is enough and everybody's paying attention across the world. And I think the reason it's important across the world is because it resonates with many communities in different places apart from the US and particularly in the UK. I mean, you all know, we all know 
that the interaction between police and the black community has sparked some of the most significant instances of both racial justice and, and racial tension in the UK over the last 30, 40 years. So it's not surprising that this resonates so powerfully because although deadly force is not used in the same way in the UK as it is in the US, thankfully, many of the same issues resonate here. Profiling, disproportionate stop and search, excessive use of force, and the, and the tension between the black community and the police is very similar here. So it's a really key moment. And probably the last thing I'd add on that to answer your question is that I, I think everybody, black people, white people, Asian people, everybody of all ethnicities is suddenly focused on this issue with a level of clarity and level of intensity, which is really unusual. And that gives us an opportunity to really crunch down on this issue and try and change it because it's an issue that's been going on all of my life and I think all of our lives. And of course, you were involved with the family of Stephen Lawrence um, yeah. after Stephen's murder. Just before we get on to what happens now, paint a picture of what you think has changed since, since Stephen's murder. Did it produce change? What kind of change did it produce? Yeah, I mean, I think that the standard response is it's produced some change, but not enough. That's what everybody would say. Um, where I think, so with, against that background, what I think is really interesting is that I remember quite well in the 90s that it was quite difficult to explain to people the concept of institutional racism. There was even amongst white liberal thinking people quite a strong resistance at the time in the 90s to admit to their own racism or to admit to systemic racism. And I think that's changed quite a bit. Don't get me wrong, those systemic problems still exist, but people understanding that institutionalized racism exists and that there's a bigger, broader picture about how we all contribute uh, to the way society functions for black and minority ethnic people. I think that that understanding has changed. But I do think, we can come on to it, that that change also is in danger of leading us down a slightly wrong path in this instance. Say more about that. Well, I think that what was really interesting about the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and what was so powerful about it is that the Lawrence family took a very specific instance of the murder of Stephen and the bungling of the investigation into his murder by police because of institutionalised racism. And as the process went on, it extended out for us to look at society much more generally, even to the point where individuals were discussing race and looking at their own views, their own viewpoints, unconscious bias across broader society. So they used a very specific incident and eventually it became a discussion about society, uh, racism in society in general. Unfortunately, in a, in a, in a well-intentioned way of trying to grapple with that big issue, sometimes when I'm hearing the conversations about George Floyd, everybody's jumping straight to the big issue. It's skirting over the specific problem that needs to be addressed. And they want to have a big conversation about racism in all its forms, slavery, colonialism, all sorts of discussions about unconscious bias, microaggressions. Now, all of these things are really important, and we do talk about them a lot, actually, so, so they're important things. But we shouldn't forget the lesson from the Lawrence Inquiry is that you start focusing on the key issue. The Lawrence Inquiry began by a really careful examination of what had happened in Stephen's murder, what had happened in the investigation, and what the relationship was between the black community and the police, and how that relationship had become dysfunctional on the police's part of institutionalized racism. 
Now, we need to apply the same focus here. If we take the George Floyd situation and it just becomes an opportunity for us all to discuss racism very generally and race relations and how we all feel and black people call their white friends and white people call their black friends and they have a discussion about, you know, how they each feel and at the end of it exhale and say, wow, that was a great conversation. I really hope our kids move the needle forward. That misses this opportunity. Let's address right here, right now, how we change the problem of policing, accountability, and the way racism infects that relationship. And let's all work together to change that right now and seize this opportunity is my position. And what does that mean in the UK, Matthew? Well, I think uh, I worked with David Lammy on the Lammy Review. I was one of the advisors on that. I think I was the only lawyer or, or I'm a judge as well, so the only judicial advisor on it. And, um, you know, 35 recommendations of a very careful, thoughtful study, they need to be carried through. That was a really thoughtful uh, analysis of what was wrong, what was failing black people within the criminal justice system. We need to make sure that we hold hard on implementing those things. For individuals, it means pushing hard your legal, your political representatives, supporting your community groups. If you're somebody who says, but I don't know what to do, I really want to do something, I don't know what to do. The first thing you can do is start funding those small community organizations like Stopwatch, who are specifically addressing stop and search and the relationship and the accountability of the police. Give them some money, fund them, support them. Uh, similarly, mobilize around the issues of policing and policing accountability. You know, when we've seen uh, concerns about knife crime and, and serious youth violence across London, we still, in 2020, 2019, 2018, reach for the instinctive response of more stop and search. Stop and search has increased exponentially without an evidential base that it's effective. So what we need to do is say, okay, if, if we think that's a tool, where's the evidence? Where's the data that shows the efficacy of stop and search? And if there isn't any, is it really any different from the stereotypical assumptions as to what works and doesn't work that lead to the kind of prejudices that played themselves out so tragically in something like George Floyd? And for those of our listeners, Matthew, not familiar with the detail of the Lamy Review, paint a, a brief picture of its broad themes and whether we know whether they're being implemented. Well, it was a report uh, by David Lamy, but it was commissioned actually in 2016 by David Cameron. And the remit of the report was to look at how black and minority ethnic people are treated within the criminal justice system. Importantly, it wasn't about the process prior to engagement in the system. So, for example, the whole aspects of policing and stop and search were not included in the review. And that is another topic which is just as important to this, but, but you know, we can come to that if we need to. On the, just to deal briefly with the review, it, so it covered how people are treated through the prosecution system, through the prison system, and so on. And it came up with 35 recommendations. They're quite detailed. I won't go into all of them. But some of them are really... Uh, important and quite profound. So, for example, one of the recommendations was to have an evidence base for activity that disproportionately impacts black and minority ethnic people. And what David called it was explain or reform. In other words, if you have a policy that impacts disproportionately on people, black people or people who are minority ethnic, then you can't explain why that impact, that disproportionate impact is justified. You must reform it. In other words, the burden is on you, the government, 
to justify those kind of disproportionate impacts. Now, that seems like a small thing, but as a, as a policy approach, it's really meaningful. And I saw it in effect personally after the Lamy review when the mayor of London, uh, his team reviewed the gangs matrix, which is a matrix about crime in London and, and predominantly has young black men on that matrix. And that policy of explaining reform meant that at every turn you could be saying to the police, if you can't explain this and you can't continue with a discriminatory policy. I mean, other, other policies were, for example, increasing representation in the judiciary and setting targets. At the moment, there's bad underrepresentation in the judiciary, but they don't want to set targets, to so set some targets. And also uh, other things like use of force committees in prison, making sure they are ethnically representative so that the people assessing whether force was justified come from a range of communities. So things like that. And that's really helpful. And is it happening, Matthew? Uh, some of the policies are being implemented. I've got to say that I think someone's let their hands off the steering wheel a bit between Brexit, COVID and various other things. And I'm not confident that this iteration of a Conservative government gives it anywhere near the priority that David Cameron or even Theresa May did. And, th and that's very worrying. So this is an example for me of how all this energy around George Floyd's death should make everybody say, well, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. There are things that have been done, good work that's been done, that is sitting there. You need to make sure that you're addressing it. And I, and I do think, it, it feels like a cliche, but I do think the relationship between the police in the context of stop and search has to be really examined strongly now. We did it around the time of Stephen Lawrence and it slipped back. We need to do it again. How important is the role of activism in putting pressure on the political system and, and making sure that these kinds of recommendations are put into force? It's extremely powerful. I, I think um, it doesn't happen without a level of activism outside. And that, that happens in two ways. And from, for people listening in, they can understand that their activism can really contribute. The first way is to support those community organisations that are being active. I can tell you from personal experience that when you have community groups or small organisations that are working on these issues, when they are lobbying those in political positions of power and they have access to those in positions of power, it makes a massive difference to the conversation that takes place in the room. It's huge. Um, and having the right people in positions of power, you know, Sadiq Khan's administration, whoever it is, you know, making sure that you have people who understand these issues is really important. Um, I think the second way, though, is what we're seeing now, which is, for the reasons I've just explained, we do have a situation where we've, we're forgetting the lessons of the past and we're slipping backwards in terms of how we're dealing with these issues in terms of the relationship between black people and the police. The big disturbances of 2011, after the um, shooting of Mark Duggan, uh, should be a reminder of how serious things can get when that relationship breaks down. And we are stretching that relationship to breaking point in a well-intentioned effort to deal with knife crime and serious violence, but slipping back into old ways of dealing with it, like what is now suspicionless stop and search, not even based on suspicion, suspicionless stop and search. And we are heading for a problem and seeing young people on the street of all ethnicities saying, we want to do something about the lives of black people in this context of policing is immensely powerful. It means that those who have that intention in politics already have the wind behind their uh, wings and they can say, this is really important. Look what's happening in the street. 
And those who are skeptical about it and say, no, the public isn't interested in that, are faced with a huge amount of people saying we actually are Black Lives Matter to us. So I think it's enormously powerful and the kind of activism you're seeing now makes a massive, massive difference. And and you've made it very clear that it's it's really important to focus on the specifics at a time like this. Yeah. D- d- how much value do you think these bigger conversations around white privilege and anti-racism have? I mean, is there anything positive we can we can do with this openness about talking about this subject? I think those conversations are really valuable. And, you know, what the end of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry process and those more general points triggered is this kind of conversation taking place within society and, and affecting our culture. I mean, that's one of the most powerful legacies of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. It's made a cultural change in how we talk about race and, and the comfortableness in which we talk about racism that can be well-intentioned but completely problematic. But I do think we're in, we fall into error if we think that's a substitute for action. It's almost the sort of thing, you know, just as we all have to watch what we eat and exercise regularly, we all need to keep a watch on how we're viewing racism, how we're dealing with those relationships, how we're teaching children around us or how we're dealing with older people. That's part of our general social communal health. And that conversation should always be continuing. That's not a substitute for addressing what took people out on the streets in Minneapolis and what has people on the streets now. They didn't go onto the street because of the general stuff. They went out onto the street because of the specific issue of black men, another black man being killed by the police and that needing to be dealt with. I said it before and I'd say it again. You know, that is a really important thing to keep in mind. Matthew, you've worked um, as a lawyer and an activist and indeed then inside politics uh as Deputy Mayor of London and an activist, talk to us about the balance of the what you might call the inside game and the outside game and the and the and the different impact it can have and, and your experience really of being, you know, in the formal political process. Yeah, it's funny actually. I wouldn't describe myself in either iteration or either either role as an activist. My job as a barrister QC and, and I sit as a judge is is really dealing with how you tackle these problems within a legal framework. And uh, in the context of my political position, it was how we tackle them in a you know, political framework. I think it, what's really interesting is, is if you are campaigning, and, and, and you're right, Ed, I've worked with a lot of campaigners and I've worked with a lot of activists in my, in my role as a lawyer, your, your focus and your targeting your energy on specific issues to make a change. And often... You're, you're having a confrontation with those in power, hopefully not one which is, is too acrimonious, but you're confronting an injustice or a problem and saying, look, this needs to be changed. When you're inside the political process, your job is to be more holistic, in my view, and try and understand how you can uh, put into effect the concerns that people are expressing to you in a way that really gives them lasting traction. Because one of the great things about campaigns and legal activism is that you get to focus on a point and you may win or lose an argument. But that's simply, you're fighting often a single issue or a single important point for a particular individual or a family, like I was with Stephen Lawrence and like I was with Ian Tomlinson. 
when you're dealing with it in the political framework, you're trying to understand how you deal with this across society, across London, for me, and how you make sure that you're including everybody in a policy that will work for everybody. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to go into politics um, for, the, for those two years. It's not something I wanted to do full time, <laughs> unlike some people. But um, I, I did want to experience it because it was a really interesting way of seeing the other side of, of the table from where I usually sit and saying, OK, if somebody's saying here are our demands, here's what we want. How do you actually bring them into effect? What do you, what do you actually do to meet those demands? And what are the dilemmas that stop you from being able to do what people want you to do? That was fascinating for me. And what's your most lasting takeaway from that period of two years? Uh, I have a few. Um, uh, one of them is that uh, I think probably you, with a lot of political solutions, you need to, you know, there is a big picture, but there are also sprints. You need to sprint and you need to get the job done quickly. If everything is a massive big plan, it can be too cumbersome to work with. And so what I found particularly helpful was when people, when you go to a politician with clear, fully formed ideas and saying, can you implement this? It's very powerful. And that for me was, was one of the lasting things for me. If you're an activist or you're somebody with political interest, if you, and you want to make political change to a politician, I found go to them and say, here's an idea. This is why it works. This is what you can do. And you could, you force that politician to either say, yes, I'll do it or, ex, or ex, have to explain to you why they won't. Whereas if you go and say, here's a problem, you need to solve it. Often that never happens because the, the political administration has very little time to think, very little time to process it, and even shorter time to actually implement it. So fully formed ideas that you're taking to politicians, I think, are really powerful and allow somebody to implement things quickly. And in a sense, that, that speed between idea and implementation is so critical because if there's a long gap between idea and implementation, it just sort of goes stale. That takes me then to the question of, this moment and how you make this not a momentary expression of people's desire for change, but to something more lasting? What people need to do now, those who are campaigners, those who are activists, what you need to do now is formulate what you want out of this. What do you want are specific policies that you want. You know, so, so for example, you're seeing that in the US. We want the officers charged. That's really powerful. That's happened. The next big ask, I don't know if you've seen a campaign that's, that's gathered a lot of traction in the last few days called Eight Can't Wait. It's a website and there's a hashtag attached to it, but it's really done well on social media. And I think it's a really great example of a campaign because what they're saying is here are eight policies that if everybody across the US implemented those policies, there'd be a 72% reduction in deaths. And, and I've got to tell you, some of the policies, when they say we need to implement these, if you're a UK listener, they're just shocking that they're not already there. So, I mean, for example, they're campaigning for every state to require police officers to use shooting as a last resort. I mean, pretty phenomenal that it's not already. They're requiring every state to have to warn people before you shoot them. I mean, these are... Uh, pretty standard things. And I think it's very powerful to see them in the way they've been set out as eight very simple propositions, 
because it's letting everybody know that if you do this, it will change it. And I think what we need that step with what's been asked for here. It'd be a bit presumptuous of me to try and say, here is what I think are the five things now. But I certainly am hoping, and I'm having lots of discussions about it, within the next few days, some very clear policy asks come and people can, can kind of gather around those policy asks to say, here are the things we want done. So one really good example of, of a sort of concrete policy was the tragic case of Beli Majunga. Now, she was somebody, people might recall, who was spat at by a member of the public uh, who claimed to have COVID and she later died. And there was a lot of frustration and a lot of anger about the fact that nobody's been prosecuted or charged in relation to what happened. And what's powerful is that her name and what she went through and the fact that her life hadn't been properly honoured, people felt, in the way it was being approached, was at the centre of the protests of Black Lives Matter in recent days. And so they put her name in the middle of it, explained why it was so important to have justice for her. And now we've heard today that the CPS are going to review that case. Last question, Matthew. Um, I think many, many people have felt outraged by what happened to George Floyd and felt great solidarity with his family and people across America and indeed people in Britain who are affected by racism. What should allies of this movement who aren't black be doing? What's your what's your what what are the things that we that, that we should be doing? First and foremost, sorry to be blunt about it, give to those organizations that support. Put your hand in your pocket and give. I'll give you an example. I went on social media on my Twitter account, um, Rider MC, and I said, look, if you want to do something, give to the Stopwatch organization or give to a group called the Amos Bursary that Valerie Amos set up, which specifically deals with improving education results for young black boys. So Stopwatch or Amos Bursary. Within three days, Stopwatch had hit their target of £50,000 just through, or almost entirely through, small donations, £5, £10, £20. Thousands of people donated small amounts to make £50,000 in three days. So that's really powerful. And and you're, you're funding people who really know what they're talking about there. Second thing I think you can do is lend your weight in whichever capacity to the, the political asks around these issues. Too often in the shuffle of political issues, these things get lost. We stop talking about stop and search because we're so concerned about Brexit. We stop talking about the need to fund legal aid properly, which is a crisis that's gone on, an absolute decimation of legal aid, that, that if, it, if it had happened to the NHS or it had happened to education, there'd be people uh, talking about it nonstop the crisis of legal aid needs to be addressed. And that's an issue which easily gets lost in the shuffle of other issues that we talk about. That if you want to do something about it, keep making that a priority because it really does change the lives of people. And I think the third thing to do would be to uh, look at your own organisations and where you are. And in, as part of those conversations, say to yourself, what are we actually doing to address these issues in my organisation? And one idea I, I think um, that I've talked to a few people about, which which might be helpful and put the onus on people, is that in large companies or even in small firms, people sometimes say, we'd love to have, for example, more black people employed here, but we just can't find them. They don't apply for interviews. They don't 
uh, managed to um, get through the process. So, you know, there's a, it's not our fault. We want to, but we just can't find them. Well, perhaps every year that your complaint is that the pipeline isn't good enough to get them to us, fund the pipeline organizations. Every year that you haven't managed to improve your numbers, commit to making a donation or some form of uh, a support for those organizations that do change the pipeline. So those are the kind of things I think you can do across the board for the kind of change you want to make. And it would take what is, you know, passion and excitement about this issue and give it lasting change. Otherwise, we all know within two weeks or three weeks, uh, this will subside and then people will go back to business as usual. And unless we seize this moment, this problem will continue forever. That's very good and sound advice um, for, for all of our listeners and indeed for us. Matthew Ryder, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. Thank you. Well, we're delighted to be joined now by Professor Kalwant Bhopal, who is Director of the Centre for Research in Race and Education at the University of Birmingham and also author of White Privilege, The Myth of a Post-Racial Society. Uh, Kalwant, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and can I just start by asking you to give us, I mean, what is the premise of the book and, and also the, you know, the argument that you make in the book? So one of the things that I was particularly interested in exploring this book was the prevalence and existence of white privilege. And I explored policymaking in the UK. And I argue in the book that despite significant advances in policymaking, particularly neoliberal policymaking, what has happened is as a result of policymaking, it has actually made the situation worse for black and minority ethnic groups in the UK. So what we have is a situation where white privilege is used to protect the position of whites in order that BME groups are in fact disadvantaged. And what the book does is it explores different structures. So I look at education, the labour market, higher education, and I also look at the different ways in which we can challenge this. Can you tell me about the rucksack of privilege? Okay, so when I talk about white privilege, I draw on the work of Peggy McIntosh. Peggy McIntosh, uh, her work is quite dated, actually. She wrote in the 1980s, but she described white privilege as this knapsack of privilege that we put on our backs. So in that, in that rucksack, we have, uh, we can walk through customs without being stopped. We can park our car without being arrested by the police. We have access to a passport. We have access to checks. We have access to medical records. So things that advantage us, advantage us as white people. And what she argues that this white privilege is there by what we see. So a white man will have access to all of this privilege, whereas a black man will not because they are more likely to be stopped by the police. Why do you think so many people have this idea that Britain is is post-racial or you know so, so much better than other places where, where does that myth come from that's a really interesting question so one of the reasons I used the title the myth of a post-racial society was that 20 years ago the McPherson report was published and public bodies had to abide by this notion of what institutional racism is and the fact that they had to recognise that it exists and had to act upon it. So, for example, schools were required to record their racist incidents and then send these to the local authorities so that we had a record of what was going on. So 
after the McPherson report was published, we had the Equality Act, which was published in 2010. Again, a really important piece of policymaking in the UK. What the Equality Act did was to bring together all previous legislation into one single act. But the reason why it was important was because it includes protected characteristics of which race is one. So after the McPherson report, after the Equality Act, the public, political and academic discourse was one in which it was argued we now live in a post-racial society. So racism no longer exists. So I argue in the book that actually there's a huge amount of evidence to show that this is not the case. In fact, racism has increased. And can you talk to me some more about the, the specific policies um, that have, have increased or, or favoured white privilege? That's a really good question because I argue in the book that policymaking throughout all the different stages of individuals, for instance, schooling, higher education and the labour market, policymaking exists to perpetuate white privilege. And one of the ways that we can look at that is by looking at statistics. Statistics are really important because they give us a very good picture of the demography. So in schools, for instance, whilst we have policies around inclusion that exist in, in terms of providing support for young people and also in, in terms of providing support for those who have English as a second language, who tend to be Pakistani and Bangladeshi students. These policies are in fact ineffective because young people, if you are black or from a minority ethnic background, you are less likely to leave school with three A-star, A-level grades compared to the white British population. In higher education, policymaking around the BME attainment gap exists to providing support for black students and exists in terms of looking at the curriculum and decolonising the curriculum. But the statistics show us that if you are black, you are less likely to leave university with a 2-1 or a first-class honours degree. And that persists into the labour market. So in the labour market, there are many policies that address equality and diversity and racism. However, if again, if you look at the statistics, certainly in higher education, we only have 25 black professors in the whole of the UK. And if you look at boards and the FTSE index, the numbers of individuals who are in senior powerful positions and roles are white middle class men. Can we try and get the sort of roots of, of what's gone wrong or, or rather what hasn't been put right. So you you talk about the, uh, I think it was the 2010 Equality Act. Is the problem here that that provided a better sort of framework for equality in the law, but didn't really do anything about the real material inequalities on the ground? What would, tell us a little bit more about the sort of distinction between the law that has been passed or the laws that have been passed that's obviously not the only law and 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 the reality that 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 black people experience in the UK that's absolutely spot on. So legally, we're in a really strong, good position because we have the, the Equality Act and every public body has to comply with the Equality Act. But what I argue is that by bringing in all the legislation into one single act, race has been forgotten about. And a key issue here is, I argue, that a failure to acknowledge racism results in a failure to act upon it. And many organisations, not just schools or higher education or the labour market, there is this failure to acknowledge that institutions are actually racist. And if we don't acknowledge them, we can't change them. When you talk about implementing policies 
based on clear outcomes. Where where do we find those policy ideas from? Like where, where do we where, where where is there evidence? Is there are the other countries in the world or institutions that have done a good job of this that you can point us towards? Yeah. So I think that there's quite a lot of evidence around inclusive policy making in this country in terms of the research that we've done. But the issue is it's not acted upon. We know these things. This is nothing new. There's years and years and years of research that has told us that racism continues to persist, but we don't seem to be doing anything about it. And that's why I mean, I was asked this yesterday, is this a particular moment in our history where things will change given the situation in the US? I don't know because I've been doing, I've been talking about this for 25 years, but nothing seems to change. In six months time, are we still all going to be talking about how awful racism is in our social structures and the everyday lives of individuals who have to encounter it on a daily basis? Well, that takes us on to the question of what would a recognition of white privilege mean for public policy and what would an actively anti-racist policy look like? Perhaps you can say something about that. So the first thing I think is a recognition that racism is real. Okay, racism exists because there is a huge amount of denial that suggests, well, actually, we're not really a racist society. It's because we've only got a small percentage of BME individuals in our country. So it's no accident that if you are a young black man, you're less likely to leave school with three A-levels. It's no accident that you're more likely to be stopped by the police. It's no accident that you're more likely to be unemployed six months after you graduate than your white counterparts. It's no accident that you're more likely to be paid less than somebody who's doing the same job from a white background. These are not accidents. This is a result of policymaking that continues to protect and privilege whiteness and obviously, you know, this is this is a moment when there is a focus on these issues, but often these moments come and then they go and nothing seems to change or not enough seems to change. What do you think is the way in which momentum is built from this moment? What What's the hope that people can, t- can take, I suppose, about what, what can be done? I think it's a really interesting moment, given that uh, this is happening now in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, And I think that we are in a particular moment. But for me, the issue is how do we as a society, because I feel we have a moral obligation, address deeply embedded systemic racism, which continues to exist in our society. And I think that That is going to be a very, very difficult way forward. But the only way that I think that will happen is if we have significant change in terms of who we employ, why we employ individuals. And I think that there has to be this recognition that we have to move on forward from this, because in 25 years time, I don't want us. I probably won't be here in 25 years time, but I don't want us to be having a similar my children to be having a similar conversation about racism and The optimist in me says, yeah, this is the moment we can move forward from it. But the pessimist in me says, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. We've been here before. And what should Allies for Change be doing? Allies for Change who might be listening to this podcast and are thinking, what role can I play in this? I think that it's important for people to call it out. 
as I say to my kids, it's important to speak up about injustice and racism and to think about the difference that that will make. Because when white people speak up about racism, it has a very different, well, as you've seen on, on, on the, um, press coverage that we have, it, it, it has a very different reaction to when people of colour speak out about it. So I think it's really, really important to do that. And I get that um, it, sometimes it's very difficult to be vocal because of the positions that we are in, um, because of the fact that it may be risky in terms of how we are perceived. But in my opinion, silence is complicity. OK, well, Kalwant Bhopal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed for having me. So, Jeff, what did you think? In a way, I don't feel like I've got anything useful to say that hasn't already been no. said. But one thing, sort of prior to recording, and especially after the conversation we had with Matthew, um, I, I have found it really useful as somebody who's wanted to to do something but not really known how to go to Matthew's Twitter account in recent days and donate to and and, and find out more about the um, organizations and campaigns he mentioned so you know that that was really valuable but I, I certainly don't feel I've got anything particular to contribute I mean I, I sort of think in a way in particular in relation to this issue listening you know, is is kind of a good start for us um, rather than sort of pontificating. So I, I think you're right. I think the one thing that strikes me, and maybe this is where there is a sort of similarity to other kind of moments that, that, that happen, is this question of sort of how you maintain momentum and that question of the sort of balance between a general a general sort of attack on racism and a general kind of not just desire but momentum to root out racial injustice and the specifics that Matthew was talking about. I think what he was saying to us was the the, the general conversation is incredibly important, but it's also got to kind of direct itself to specific demands. And, and I think that strikes me as as correct. But But as you say, it's got to be the beginning of the conversation and the, the responsibility of all of us is to try and try and ensure that that happens. And, and listen, if you go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com, we'll do our best to put up plenty of links to stuff you can read and listen to about Black Lives Matter and anti-racism and, and stuff in particular that's specific to the UK experience. So go to cheerfulpodcast.com. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've got thoughts on this week's episode, please do email us. You can go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com, and find out how to email us. We, we read every email uh, we get. And, you know, if you've got thoughts about this week's show or ideas for future podcasts, please let us know. This one comes from Hilary Strong. It, it, it relates to an issue which provoked a lot of um, correspondence. Uh, it's entitled Tooth Fairy. Uh, Hilary says, the summer before my daughter went to boarding school, I thought I should tell her about Santa. She was disappointed. She thought about it for a moment and then said, what about the Tooth Fairy? I admitted our role. She came straight back with, and what about God? I said that wasn't us, and she'd have to make up her own mind. Thank you to uh, thank you to everybody, including those who pointed out uh, that Jacinda Arden had indeed declared the Tooth Fairy a key worker. Now, this is good. This is from Celia Denton on the subject of remote working. Um, she says there were some useful ideas. However, I have to take issue with the Stanford guy and the productivity argument. I'm not questioning his stats, uh, though there will be reasons people perform better at home, especially if they know they're part of an experiment. Some positive ones, not so much. Um, she says, I would argue that workplaces offer more than just somewhere you do a job and can be a positive community where you have a network and your own sense of identity. I'm a woman. I have worked full time pretty much all my adult life. And I'm used to the thing that happens in meetings where you get talked over stroke ignored by the men in the room. You'd think I'd be pleased about remote working then. But no, because my experience is that this behaviour happens so much more on Skype and video calls. I have literally had to write an email after a video meeting to summarise the information I've been given in the video meeting because the guy who'd asked for it couldn't listen, stroke kept talking over me as I was saying my stuff, stuff oh, he yes. himself wanted to know. Uh, this is over and above the confusion about who's on mute, etc. There is something about not picking up uh, in cues. Really important. Like you point, might in real life it? meetings, yeah. I mean, that is a really important point, Celia. Thank you so much for getting in touch with us. And maybe the guy in question is listening. It doesn't uh, sound like he listens. Well, no, it's true. He doesn't listen. That's, that is true. But, but maybe that was a way of him getting the point. Uh, this one comes from Brendan Thika. Greetings from China. Dear Jeff and Ed, in that order, greetings from China. I'm an expat Yorkshireman working at the University of Nottingham here in Ningbo, China, teaching chemistry, physics and maths. I enjoy listening to your podcast both here in China and on a recent vacation to Cuba. Like Jeff, I'm a massive fan of the Beatles. I miss your Beatles brunch radio show when I moved over to China in 2016. Please can you send me the link to your US radio show on the Beatles? Best wishes to all and keep up the great programmes. Dr. Brendan Thika. Oh, how lovely. Well, it's it's on Sirius He's XM Radio in the States. And I, th I think they're currently, I don't know if, if it's accessible in China, but I think they're currently doing a thing where you can listen to it for free. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We're in the outro. Oh, here we are. Now, I've got some exciting viewing sort of lined up because we've got the last episode of Killing Eve, which I've not seen. The last episode of Jiri Hadji, which is a Japanese... I've just started that. English. It's really good. It is really good. And Parasite, you know, that the, the best film. Yes. The Korean drama. Anything else you'd like to chuck into the mix? Uh, we're watching Jiri Hadji. We just watched a... Uh, 
a, a sort of dramedy, I suppose you'd call it. It's the, the modern phrase called yeah. Better Things with Pamela Adlon, which we've uh, we've, we've enjoyed. Sounds good. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm in need of something funny. If people have got recommendations, I, got I feel to we've say, got the drama really, sorted out. I'm really into parks and recreation, honestly. So how far into it are you now? Mm, we liked uh, Series 2, Episode 10, just watched. I mean, you know, it's like, it's only 22 minutes, so it's not like a massive investment of time. Uh, and as you know, that's kind of like, you know, quite important for me because I've got a short attention span. And it's just very light and quite amusing. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of recommending... All right, maybe, maybe I'll, go, I'll go back in for a revisit then, perhaps. Yeah, go back in for a revisit. I'd like to thank our guests... Who, who I thought were really, really interesting. Matthew Ryder and Professor Kalwant Bhopal. Yeah, they're brilliant. Uh, so Emma Caution produces our podcast with research by Joel Pierce and backup from Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. 